from RTE News, this is States of Mind. Donald, you're not going to be able to insult your way to the presidency. Little Buddha touch, Slippy Joe and Crazy Bernie, Mini Mike. I hit Pocahontas way too early. We have a president who is not only a pathological liar. We have a criminal living in the White House. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Let's just pick somebody, please, and let's start this thing. Let's start it. Pick somebody. Your U.S. Election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today. Aren't you concerned you could infect other people if you get sick inside? No. I'm covered in Jesus' blood. When he said, hey, I, I have absolute power, I was like, I just groaned to myself. And I thought, oh, man, that, that, that was not, not the right thing to say. So wrong. This is just so wrong. This, this election should have been called off. Vice President Gore and I put our hearts and hopes into our campaigns. So I understand how difficult this moment must be. Brian, can you vote over there? No, I can't because I am not a citizen. I'm not a permanent resident. I'm a visa holder, so I can't vote over here. But interestingly, Jackie, it's also tricky for me to vote back in Ireland if I wanted to vote in an Irish election because Ireland's quite strict on postal voting and absentee ballots and all that kind of thing. And that's something we're going to be looking into today from a US perspective. Because voting around the world, it's always been contentious. But in the United States in particular, there has been almost a continuous struggle from women voting to rights for black people to vote and even barriers that minority groups had to break through that when they were allowed to vote. Poll taxes, literary tests and imitation all turned African-Americans away from the polls right up to the time of the civil rights movement in the 60s. And it's still as complicated and talked about as ever. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., recent Nobel Peace Prize winner and civil rights leader, is making a final swing throughout the nation in a last-minute effort to get out the vote. Each of us has a moral responsibility, if we are of voting age and if we are registered, to participate in that decision. Now, I know you are intelligent people, and I don't need to tell you who you should vote for. I don't have any fear about that you know who to vote for. So for this week's refresher, let's turn to the voting system in the United States, which unfortunately for us isn't that simple when it comes to the presidential one. Firstly, who is eligible to vote? Around 138 million Americans voted in the 2016 presidential election, but around double that are eligible to vote, but not everyone can vote either. Yeah, so some states, as I mentioned earlier, have different rules about who's eligible. Some states ban convicted criminals, especially felons, from voting for a fixed period of time or indefinitely. And that results in around 6 million American adults who can't vote at the moment due to felony convictions. And this has been very controversial, and it's something that actually came up in the recent race for the Democratic nomination. I think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy. Yes, even for terrible people. People who are convicted in prison, like the Boston Marathon bomber, on death row, people who are convicted of sexual assault, they should be able to vote? I think we should have that conversation. While incarcerated? Yeah. No, I don't think so. 
whoever is eligible to vote, the most common system is the first past the post system. Members of Congress are most likely to be elected according to the system, meaning that the candidate with the most votes is the winner of the congressional seat. For president, it's easy to imagine that every US citizen's vote being counted together on election day and the person with the most votes wins. But that is not the case. And that's what's called the popular vote, which Hillary Clinton won in 2016. But as we all know now, she did not win the presidential election. And remember, I did win more than 3 million votes than my opponent. So it's like, really? And it's not decided by that. It's decided by individual states. On election day, you vote for a president and their vice president and you get one choice, not like in Ireland where you put your choices in order of preference. Then all the votes in your state are counted and the candidate with the most statewide votes is the candidate your state supports for president. And this happens across the country, except in Nebraska and Maine, a slightly different system there where they also bring in congressional districts when it comes to choosing their selected candidate. Yeah, and what's important here is that the United States is each state is different. For example, look at population. Kansas has almost 3 million people, where California has around 40 million people. So California needs to have more influence than Kansas because California has more people. For this to happen so we can account for the population of each state, California is split up into what's called congressional districts based on population. So California has 53 and Kansas has four. And when it comes to this election, the number of districts, as you said, matters the most. The more districts is more population and therefore equals more influence. Yeah, and that influence is based on your number of electors. This number comes from the number of districts in a state and the number of US senators, which is always two. So if a candidate wins a state, they win that number of electors. And hence why the big states are so important to candidates. The number of electors is what's really important. And there's a magic number. The magic number is 270. If you pass 270, you win. The candidate's goal is to win the majority of the 538 electors, that magic figure of 200. Now, my own personal take on the Electoral College is some people look at it from the outside and go, this system is crazy. Why can't you just vote based on yeah. who gets the most votes? And that's the winner. My own view on it is I see its advantages. I see its purpose. I think there's a sense out there that if it was just down to the popular vote, should the candidates would just go up to places like New York and California, where all the people are and do all their campaigning there and then mm -hmm. ignore the smaller states, ignore your Wyoming's and your Nebraska's. On the flip side, then, people would say that actually those smaller states have too much of an influence. So the smallest number of electors you can get is three. But if you're a Wyoming and you're getting your three electors and California has its 55, that's not proportional. And actually someone in Wyoming is getting far too much of a say, you could say. It's not a perfect system. It is the system they have here in the U.S., and it's the system that elects U.S. presidents. And uh, with these votes, Donald Trump has just passed the threshold of 270 electoral votes, uh, college votes, that he needs to officially become president of the United States. Yeah, so rack up the most states, win the most electors, and you get the keys to the Oval Office. And that's if even you lose the popular vote nationally, as happened with George W. Bush in 2000 and more recently Donald Trump, which understandably could leave a sour taste in your mouth if you are their opponent. With the outcome of the presidential election not finalized for longer than any of us could ever imagine, Vice President Gore and I put our hearts and hopes into our campaigns. 
We both gave it our all. We shared similar emotions. So I understand how difficult this moment must be for Vice President Gore and his family. My brain doesn't hurt too much after that, but now that we've gotten that out of the way, we can kind of dip into more of the controversies that are happening at the moment, and that is down to voting in particular, especially the health and safety risks surrounding voting during this pandemic. Questions arise, how are you supposed to go to a polling booth when you're supposed to social distance? Not only are people thinking about this for November, because we don't know how long this is going to go on for. But it's a very real time thing, especially with primary voting happening uh, over the next couple of months in May, in June. People are not only out and about voting for who they want as their party's presidential candidate, but some states are also having local elections too. And a lot of people are turning to absentee voting so they don't have to show up to the polls and risk getting sick. Yeah, and we saw it really vividly and really obviously earlier this month. This morning, people in Wisconsin have a tough choice to make. Protect their health by following the state's stay-at-home order or exercise their right to vote. This is so wrong. This is just so wrong. This this election should have been called off. You know, they're telling us to stay in the house and, you know, stand six feet from each other. But then one of the most important times, they're forcing us to come out here in a group. Stop playing politics with our lives. You know, that's what I'm feeling. It was a Democratic primary and there were some local elections going on there as well. The Democratic governor of Wisconsin said, I don't want in-person voting. It's too dangerous with the coronavirus outbreak. Let's move to an absentee ballot system. Let's move to a mail system. Or at the very least, let's move the whole primary. Let's kick it for a couple of months, which a lot of states have done. So the Democratic governor wanted that. The Republican-controlled state legislature disagreed and said, no, we want to proceed with in-person voting on the day. And the state Supreme Court agreed. So we had these bizarre scenes a couple of weeks ago in Wisconsin of long lines of people lining up in person to vote, wearing their face masks, and then going into these polling stations where a lot of the election workers were in full protective suits and masks. A lot of the polling stations didn't open, so there was a reduced number of stations. That led to even longer lines at the polling stations. And some people took a step back from this and said it was quite bizarre that at a time when we're all being told to shelter indoors and not mingle in crowds, we these lines and lines and lines of people. And it has certainly heightened the debate about whether or not we should have in-person voting at all in these days of lockdown in the coronavirus. And what was also interesting about the Wisconsin votes were some of the results. The biggest result, of course, was that Joe Biden won the primary. That was no big surprise. But there was a surprise for Republicans. Donald Trump had backed a conservative judge very heavily, a very random thing for him to focus in on. But he focused in on a judge that was to be elected to the state Supreme Court, a man by the name of Daniel Kelly. And he campaigned for him. He said, you have to vote in Daniel Kelly. And he lost. And he lost mm -hmm. to a liberal judge. And a lot of people are saying that was a bad sign for Donald Trump. Wisconsin is a swing state. It's a state that's crucial for Donald Trump. It was one of the states that got him over the line in 2016. He needs to win it again. But this judge that he backed heavily didn't get over the line and perhaps warning signs there for Donald Trump. Obviously, with mail-in ballots, you can have some challenges. Can you get enough ballots printed in time? Do you have enough money to print the ballots? How do you even staff these things when most of the workers are retired personnel who probably are the ones worried about their health? And that's not even looking at the political parties and the partisanship that is showing up there. Donald Trump weighed in at just the beginning of April about voter fraud and said that if the United States switched to all male voting, 
you'll never have a Republican elected in this country again. But if you're a senior citizen and if you're somebody that needs it, I'm all for it. But they have to be very careful because you know the things with bundling and all of the things that are happening with uh, votes by mail, where thousands of votes are gathered. And I'm not going to say which party does it, but thousands of votes are gathered and they come in and they're dumped in a location. And then all of a sudden you lose elections that you think you're going to win. I won't stand for it. Well, we're going to find out about the proof because you're going to see what's going on. And I'm not going to stand for it. And they're latching on to this belief that for some reason, because Democratic voters, maybe there's a sense out there that they can be more loyal, that they will more go to the trouble of getting that ballot paper in advance, filling it out in advance and popping it in the post. You hit on another important point, though, there in your earlier comment where you said, if you get your absentee Mm -hmm. ballot, and that was a problem in Wisconsin. Many people wanted to do the postal vote, but they actually didn't get the absentee ballot paper in time. The flip side then is that some people say, actually, there is no evidence that postal voting benefits one party over another. A lot of Democrats are also very worried about postal voting. There's a problem for Democrats as well. Some studies have shown that African-American voters and Latino voters are less likely to use postal voting compared to white voters. That's a problem for Democrats because, of course, a big part of their base is African-American voters and Latino voters. So there seems to be concerns on both sides, this belief out there that it will benefit one party over another, but no real clear evidence of who exactly would benefit from a system whereby it's all postal voting and all in-person voting cancelled because of the coronavirus. So to discuss a little bit more about voting, electoral systems, we're joined now by Rob Ritchie, who's the executive director of Fair Vote. Rob, Jackie and I were just discussing the beast that is the U.S. electoral college system. It's a bit alien to a lot of people outside of the U.S. and it's open to criticism and controversy from time to time. What's your own view of the electoral college system? Should it be ripped up and replaced with something else? Or do you think it has a purpose? Well, it's the tip of an iceberg of a whole lot of ways that the United States runs elections with a sort of an antiquated uh, 19th century or perhaps even 18th century approach. Um, I think the electoral college, uh, as we use it today, uh, it it should be uh, sidelined. And there are different reform options, actually some that are we think are quite helpful within the electoral college system. Um, but, you know, certainly having presidential elections uh, decided on the basis of every vote counting the same and, you know, uh, eliminating this idea that, that one, you can win with fewer votes, but also what in some ways is more troubling to me is we have this great stark division between a relatively small handful of states that are close and therefore get all the attention in the current system and then a great majority of states, they get no attention whatsoever because everyone knows which candidate's going to win them. And so they just write those states off. And that's just not something we should have in the in the 21st century. Something, of course, that's getting all the attention right now, and rightfully so, is the coronavirus, various lockdowns, various restrictions, social distancing. And it's led to this huge debate about will there even be in-person voting come November? And should it switch to an all-mail-in ballot system? What's your own take on the prospects for mail-in balloting? And what's your view on this sense that seems to be out there, certainly on the Republican side, that it's a bad thing, it would lead to voter fraud, and it would ultimately benefit Democrats? I think there's some real important divisions within that 
kind of stark kind of partisan definition. I, I think there are some people looking for a solution, including a lot of the governors who are right in the midst of this problem, like the governor of Ohio is a Republican, the governor of Maryland's a Republican, and they are uh, pushing um, uh, vote by mail solutions to this, you know, really tragic virus. Um, I think that um, it, it, it's another window kind of like the Electoral College into how our system is very uh, different from most countries. It's very decentralized. We do not have a national vote system. We have different voting rules in different states. Some states are all vote by mail already, you know, and, and we've seen it working and, and they are making it work. There are some states where hardly anyone votes by mail. And, and so those states have a great, you know, structural transition just to be able to handle this. And even more problematically is that within states, a lot of local and county jurisdictions make their own decisions about how to handle voting as well. So you have really a coordination problem, resource question, that 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 the challenge going forward uh, is that um, we have all these different rules in different states um, and, 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 and we have to get to some place that in a relatively short amount, amount of time, we can have something that works. And I think that the compromise that we're getting to is that every voter, every registered voter should be able to get a absentee ballot application in the mail to be able to vote by mail. And then when they return it, they'll be set up to vote by mail. And then at the same time, to have some in-person backup that is safe and secure for those who either don't get that uh, application in or are making a last minute decision to vote or what have you. Um, and, and I think that's the likely compromise that we're going to get to. When it comes to an election, whatever means it might be an absentee ballot you get or you go into a polling booth uh, to vote. When you get that ballot, we were talking earlier about the first past the post system, the candidate with a majority of votes wins the election. But you want that changed as well. You want to move things towards a more Irish style electoral system with ranked choice voting. Why is that? What difference do you think that can make? We are big fans of the Irish electoral system. Uh, you know, what you call the single transferable vote here called ranked choice voting. Um, there are some differences here. We have so many important offices where only one person wins, kind of the way you vote for president, and I guess some of your mayors. Um, but uh, in all those elections for governor and president and U.S. Senate and, and, and House members today, um, right now you actually do not win a, need a majority to win, right? You just need to have the top of the heap most votes. Um, it, 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 it has a, some real challenges um, just for any time third parties enter the race. They, they are seen as splitting the vote and can flip outcomes. And sometimes that's actually manipulated by the major parties. Um, and then we have in the United States this tradition of having the parties nominate with primaries. And then you get these big crowded fields, very split votes and people winning primaries with, you know, 25 percent and 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 sometimes not being a very representative candidate. Uh, there is a broader conversation that we're part of, which is actually to change to the proportional form of, of ranked choice voting, the, the system you use for your parliamentary elections, which really uh, many see, including us, as the best way to get to the problem of, of this stark, bitter, partisan divide where, you know, one party runs, you know, half the country, the other party runs the other half, and the other party usually can't even compete in the in the in in the you know the other party's strongholds, and we get these these real separate 
bases of support. And I think it's uh, the, the voting system itself is, is driving a lot of the things that don't work well in the United States political system. And we think that uh, Ireland has a good answer to that. Rob Ritchie, the executive director of Fair Vote, thank you very much for joining us on States of Mind. Thank you. Across different states since we last spoke, things have gotten quite tense in relation to the pandemic with people taking to the streets, protesting the restrictions. And we're also calling on you to quarantine the sick, but not the whole population. People defying mass gathering bans like going to church. Aren't you concerned you could infect other people if you get sick inside? No. People who don't go to this No, church. I'm covered in Jesus' blood. I'm covered in Jesus' blood. Things are heating up between the president and governors, but it seems this is another battle between Democrats and Republicans with the effects being felt on the ground. Absolutely. And it's interesting to see which state and which governor and which party that governor is from. So in recent days, Donald Trump tweeted, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, liberate Virginia, calling for lockdown measures in those three states to be lifted. And interestingly, they are three swing states with democratic governors. So it has become very political, of course. And we're seeing these protests. We're seeing mass gatherings of people gathering on picket lines and some governors then coming out saying, guys, you are going to prolong the lockdown because you're gathering in such big numbers. You're defying social distancing orders and you could actually be spreading the virus further. We are seeing those protests ramp up. We are seeing the mass gatherings at things like churches. We saw it over Easter weekend. Some churches proceeded with Easter services, ignoring the guidance of law and order officials to... uh, implement lockdown measures and to avoid mass gatherings. Let's get more into this with Hayden Paget, chairman of Texas Young Republicans. Before we go into election 2020, Hayden, we were chatting previously on the podcast about voting and absentee voting. Texas mm-hmm. has a super interesting story because it has one of the most restrictive absentee ballot laws in the country. You can only get an absentee ballot under very li- limited list of circumstances like sickness or physical condition. It was part of a recent lawsuit filed by the Democratic Party seeking to change the law to see if healthy people can still vote, especially if this pandemic continues to restrict how we do normal things. We're interested to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting topic right now. And I'm glad you brought it up. The Texas has a, a very unique system in that it has a blend of different kinds of voting procedures that together make it actually a fairly open system that's, that's pretty easy to vote if you would like to. Uh, you mentioned that we have a number of restrictions on who can receive a vote in ballot, and, and that is true. We do. Um, that, that's part of Texas's um, voter integrity uh, suite of policies. Uh, other ones would be a requirement of having a voter ID when you were voting, which is one of the, the challenges with a vote uh, by mail ballot. Uh, you can't present an identification uh, when you're voting, and that's what caused all of those restrictions. But to make up for uh, that restrictiveness, one of the things that Texas does really well is we have roughly a two-week early voting process where two weeks before the election day, people can go to polling locations and vote early any time of the day. And they can go to any polling location in their county. 
Um, so wherever they are working or wherever they live, they can go and vote in that two-week period. Um, and one of the ways I think that's going to help for the coronavirus and, and voting in the COVID-19 world is that I think there's going to be a lot more people who try to do early voting because there's generally far less people at those times. And so basically, it's, it's a very similar kind of thing as what we're doing with social distancing. We're trying to spread out the number of people to have less contact um, at one time. Can, can I ask you as chairman of Texas Young Republicans, why does it appear, and maybe it just appears to the outside world, that Republicans just really, really don't like absentee ballots. You know, Donald Trump, the president of the United States, saying that if the US switched to all male voting, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. Yeah, I, I, uh, it's a fair question. And I was not particularly pleased with uh, that statement by the president, uh, because I think that that's a, a bad reason to not put a policy forward uh, just because it advantages one political party of another is not a sufficient reason to pass a law. Um, however, I mean, where uh, Republicans do have some legitimate concerns is on that voter integrity side. And that, that's generally where Republicans have an issue with this uh, concept of universal vote by mail. We, we have in Texas seen a, historically a lot of voter fraud particularly in the lower income areas, um, because that's where a lot of uh, cartels will come in and use that opportunity to, uh, with people who, who have very little money to intimidate them or to incentivize them uh, to vote in a way that's, that's not necessarily honest. Um, and that same concern with uh, people cheating in elections um, carries over into a lot of the Republican it's one of the things that we are very conscious of, and that's why the Republican Party as a whole wants a voter identification law where people need to come in with a driver's license or some other kind of identification uh, in order to be able to vote. So that is a flashpoint and has been a big fault policy flashpoint between the Democrats and Republicans for a long time. I think it's becoming more uh, uh, a bigger topic of conversation now because of the coronavirus. Initially, when it broke, when the outbreak started, Donald Trump saw a boost in his approval numbers. A majority of voters said that he was doing a good job in handling the crisis. But in recent weeks, he has slipped back down again in his approval ratings. And there's maybe a concern out there that he is not doing a particularly good job of handling this. What's your own take on Donald Trump's handling of the crisis? And how do you think it will impact him on Election Day? Yeah, um, that's a question I ask myself every night because I don't know the answer to that question um, and as far as I can tell, it, it looks like uh, Trump made the right decisions. Uh, there's a question of whether he made them early enough. I, I don't know. Uh, at this point, it, it's too early to say we need to really do a good, thorough post-mortem investigation of this whole uh, crisis and the handling of it. Uh, but I do know that his restricting of travel from China and then later restricting of travel from Europe did help. Um, I do also like the fact that he was pretty proactive in making sure that there were emergency supplies and emergency personnel available to states uh, who asked for them um, very early on in the crisis. Uh, one area he has been criticized is not uh, being more aggressive in putting in place, say, a nationwide stay-at-home order. But the reality of our constitutional government in the United States is that he can't do that. 
Uh, he has no authority, um, even under an emergency declaration, to order people to stay home. That power is reserved to the states. And so in that regard, I actually think he's done extremely well in not going beyond his constitutional authority and allowing the states and their governors to make that decision themselves. But, but initially, now, yes, he also, was making sorry, some go, go things go like he wanted to, 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 to go beyond that power. He said, I have absolute and total power to reopen these states. The governor's pushed back. He, did. he sort of lost that row. And now we're seeing this interesting dynamic playing out, Hayden, where we see protests in different states, including your own, calling for these lockdowns yes. to be lifted. Donald Trump very much seems to be saying, oh, I think the protesters are right. They're great people. They want to get back to normal. What's the mood on the ground there in Texas, for example? And how do you think... Yeah. assess that element of Donald Trump's handling when it comes to lifting those lockdowns. His comment about absolute power, um, uh, first of all, he, was, he, was not, he did not articulate that in, in the right way. I believe what he was trying to say was that uh, the federal government is the supreme governing power in the country, so if there's a constitutional question, uh, they come out on top, of it. and that's what our Supreme Court has said. Uh, but in this case, I think you're right. He, he can't go and say unilaterally, you must stay home or you must lift your shelter in place orders. That is not something the president can do. Um, and as with most of his uh, time in office, we, I generally look at what he does rather than what he says. And what he has done has followed the Constitution. The way, to your point, the, the, there is a lot of movement in, in many states to open up the economy and, and a lot of that is coming from the conservative side. And it's, I find it really interesting that there seems to be a, a party or ideological split between the two different perspectives on how to address the coronavirus, which I didn't expect to have happen. Um, in Texas, um, being a more conservative state, there was a much greater push than in, say, California to open back up the economy soon. And so when the governor of our state, Governor Greg Abbott, um, last week announced a series of plans to open up certain parts of the economy, elective medical procedures, retail to go, um, by the end of April. The majority of the people in the state that I uh, was able to talk with uh, were very supportive of that. They were very glad that he was doing this. Uh, whereas if you look at California, there are some protests there, but the vast majority of people don't want to open up the economy. So it is really interesting to see these two playing out. Again, I don't know which is going to be the right answer. Right now, California and Texas have pretty uh, flat curves. We're doing pretty well in managing this uh, crisis. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen when the economy opens up. I do know that I'm very concerned about the long-term um, impact on not just the economy, but what that means for people's lives. You don't exactly listen to Donald Trump and what he has to say and more look at that he's abiding by the Constitution. Is this a Republican president that you are suffering through at the moment who has kind of some face palm moments? Um, <laughs> I'll take that last question first. So face palm moments, absolutely. When he said, hey, I, I have absolute power, I was like, I just groaned to myself and I thought, oh man, that 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 was not, not the right thing to say. Um, and and I, I had the exact same reaction in 2016 before he was president. There are a lot of Republicans who were really, really worried about him because he said a lot of things that were really not great, but he also talked about some plans he had that were good. And so we were kind of going in this going, I'm optimistic, but this could go really, really wrong. I am not suffering through him. In fact, I have been really glad that he's been the president because he's done some really great things for the economy, for helping to lift restrictions on different businesses and the way we work. 
I am less suffering through his administration <laughs> and more suffering through the coronavirus and eager for him to be able to get back to governing in the way that he had been. Brian, the gloves are off. The battle lines have been drawn. Here's to all of the election metaphors that we can muster and come up with over the next couple of months. We're only beginning, really. And now the attack ads are starting to roll on in. But there is a tone of darkness with these, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, the attack ad is a real, I think, unique element of any US election. We don't really see it at home in Ireland in the same degree. You don't see it in a lot of other countries where the very scary voiceover comes on and it's, you know, Trump <laughs> is going to lock up children in cages or Joe Biden is going to take your guns. And then at the end, it's I'm Joe Biden and I endorse this message sort of shoved into the end of the ad. And they're always very dramatic and very dark. And we've seen it certainly in the last few days. They've started to ramp up. Now that we know we have two competitors for definite, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. The primary season is over and we've seen these ads come out. They're quite dark. They're quite focused on the coronavirus. Both of them focused on China as well, a particular Joe Biden one coming out in the last few days, very much attacking Donald Trump for being too soft on China and for acting too late when it came to the coronavirus. And then a similar one on the other side from Donald Trump attacking Joe Biden and making reference to the fact that his family gained some way financially from cozying up to Chinese officials. Biden's son inked a billion-dollar deal with a subsidiary of the Bank of China. Nobody knows what this election is going to bring, and this is only the start of the story. And Brian, chat to you next week, and who knows what will emerge over the next couple of days. Probably lots more ads like these. Thanks very much, Jackie. Thanks, bye. He failed to act. So now Trump and his allies are launching negative attacks against Joe Biden to hide the truth. Look around. 22 million Americans are out of work, and we have more officially reported cases and deaths than any other country. Donald Trump left this country unprepared and unprotected for the worst public health and economic crisis in our lifetime. And now we're paying the price. All the negative ads in the world can't change the truth.